up and bring the word to us, and I'll conclude us uh, at the end. Thank you. Thank you, Pastor. Well, let me just say I am so happy to be able to be with you this morning. I love worshiping with you. I, I have, you might not remember, I've been here occasionally. I was here during COVID uh, to help out. Uh, but I'm, I'm really thrilled to be able to talk to you and address you. I'll tell you why. It's because I so respect the ministry here. I so respect your pastor because he's faithful. And you know what? That's what matters to God. We look at a lot of different things, but you know what he, what we really, what, what really moves God is covenant faithfulness, people being faithful, and he's that. And so it, I feel very privileged to be able to address you and your congregation this morning. Uh, what I'm going to be talking about is the Bible's view on women and men. We're going to be doing it through a particular passage, but the Bible gets a bad rap here. I don't know if <clears throat> you might have a different opinion or thoughts about it yourself, but what I find out in the world, there's a lot of criticism because the Bible is supposed to be a misogynistic book. It's a, it's a book that denigrates women. I have a quotation here from uh, a professor, kind of famous professor, Alan Bloom is his name. And this is, what he, this is the way he puts it. Quote, <clears throat> quote, all literature up to today is sexist. The muses never sang to the poets about liberated women. It's the same old chanson from the Bible and Homer through Joyce and Proust, unquote. So that's a pretty strong charge here that the, the Bible is sexist and it denigrates um, women. I just want to ask you something. Um, do you know who these people are? I, I want to ask if, uh, if, you, uh, if you know this, maybe you could raise your hand. Um, if you know who I'm talking about. Mala, Noah, Hagla, Milka, and Tirza. Did you know who those are? Who those people are? Pastor does. I always disqualify you. Tell us, Pastor, who is it? No, that's not Noah's wife. That's right. This is obscure. You know, I've been asking you hard questions all uh, all weekend, <laughs> having difficult times. No, you, he heard Noah, and it's and it's the same name there. But Mala, Noah, Hagla, Milka, and Tirza are the daughters of Zelophehad from Numbers 27. Right now, you remember these women were responsible for legislation that changed a nation way back early on in the bible you have these women who guaranteed because of their they were brought their complaint to moses and he was open to what they they said he brought it to god and god said they're right these women are right do what they say and that guaranteed the right of women to own property in ancient israel that's what 30, 3,500 years ago, that's, that's what the Bible is saying. So is the Bible really down on women? Um, let, me, let me do this. I'm going to ask you to raise your hand if you know this biblical character, okay? If you know who Hannah is in the Bible, I want you to raise your hand. Raise a high. Okay, see a lot of hands there. You know who Hannah is, okay? Now I want you to raise your hand and I want you to be honest if you know who Elkanah is, you do. 
Okay, maybe a few of you. That is interesting, isn't it? You, you all seem to know who Hannah is, but you don't know who Elkanah is. Well, they were a husband and wife. You know the wife, but you don't know the husband. What does that tell you? What does that tell you about the Bible? Is the Bible really down on women? Well, we're going to answer that question by opening up the book of Samuel and reading the beginning of the book of Samuel. And this is an important book because it tells us about when God did something new on the earth. He brought about a new covenant, a covenant of kingship, but not only kingship, as we were talking about, I mentioned this weekend, it's a kingship, it's a covenant of dynasty, righteous rule through all generation, not only a king, but the son of that king who will be on the throne for all generations and the way that God was going to rule his people. And what we're going to see is that the book about the covenant of dynasty coming begins with a woman. It begins with there not being children of this woman and her, her request of God. It's a story that requires a woman because it requires a birth. And this woman, Hannah, gives birth to the kingmaker, Samuel. But the first player in the drama is a woman. And in bringing this new covenant, it starts with a woman. And as we'll see, Elkanah, we're not going to read all of uh, chapter 1 and 2. I'm going to take some selections. But if you read that story, you'll see that the husband kind of, kind of uh, is not doing too well. He's somebody who's not really following the Lord too well. He actually is polygamous, has more than one wife. And, you know, in the biblical narrative, that is bad news. Whenever somebody has a, another wife, it always is trouble. Uh, the narrator makes it, makes it clear, makes sure that we know that. So he's not doing well. The woman in the story quickly outpaces, outdistances her husband. And the story really becomes about her, as we're going to see. She is the one who gives birth to the kingship in Israel. Let's read. I'm going to uh, begin in chapter 1 and verse uh, 24. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull, an epheth of flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought him, that is Samuel, to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was very young was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O oh my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. And now chapter 2, and Hannah prayed and said, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth <coughs> derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him 
actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol, and he raises up. The Lord makes poor, and the Lord makes rich. He brings low, and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. And if I just skip ahead to verse 18. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with linen, a linen ephod, and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the, and the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. And this is the word of the Lord. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, so there is the beginning of the story. And it goes on, Samuel 1 and 2. If you want to know what's going to happen in the book of Samuel, go to Hannah's prayer here. Go to Hannah's prayer song. In fact, if you want kind of like a table of contents <laughs> of what's going to happen in the book of Samuel, go to Hannah's prayer. She says at the beginning what's actually going to happen over the next century, actually next 150 years, which is the period covered by the two-volume book of Samuel. She tells us what's going to happen here in her prayer, in her song of joy that she's giving. We see, for example, verse 1 through 2, that God is absolutely sovereign over the events that occur in Israel. He is absolutely, he has his hand on everything that's going on. That's what we read about her saying in verses 1 through 2. In verse 3, he weighs the actions of the arrogant. So watch out, Eli. Watch out because your sons uh, are being arrogant. Watch out, Saul, because in your arrogance, you are going to be brought down. Even David, watch out what happens in his arrogance. Verse 4, she says, the bows of the mighty will be broken. Who's she talking about? She's talking about the Philistines who at that time had a stranglehold over Israel. And what happens over these next decades, over the next hundred years, is that stranglehold by the Philistines is broken. 
in verse 4, the mighty Philistines. But the feeble will gird on strength, or here in this translation it says bind on strength. What's she talking about? She's talking about David and Goliath. The feeble bound on strength to defeat the giant. That's what's going to happen in the book. <clears throat> verse 5, there's this reversal of fortunes. And that's what we see throughout the book. God reverses the fortunes of the people who are high up or brought low. Eli is brought down. Samuel is brought up. Saul is brought down. David is brought up. We have these reversal of fortunes. Even verse 6, look at what she says. He brings to the grave, or Sheol, and raises up again. What on earth is she talking about? He brings down to Sheol, and then he raises up again. That's exactly what happens to her son. Her son, Samuel, at a certain point, dies. And then a little while later, we meet him again. He rises up and is talking to Saul. <laughs> so God brings, brings someone to the death, and then he comes up again from Sheol. We find him talking to Saul. That's what happens in this book. So that's what I mean. If you want to find out what's going to happen, actually, if you want to read the book of Samuel, just keep Hannah's prayer right next to you <laughs> while you're reading. She's telling us what's going to happen. So, this is what's going to happen. Now, you know, non-believing scholars take this particular passage, the Song of Hannah, the Prayer of Hannah, and they date it to a much later period. They say, you know, this, this must be coming from a much later time. This was kind of written much later than the actual events. The problem with that, one of the problems with that, and the reason why they do that is because of what Hannah is saying in verses 8 and verse 10. In verse 8, she makes reference to princes. In verse 10, it's very explicit. She makes reference to a king. But in Hannah's time, there wasn't any king. There wasn't going to be any king for a long time in Israel. So scholars say, well, how does she know that it must be dated from a later time? And as I say, the problem with that is that stylistically, this fits right in Hannah's time, the language that she's using, the names that she used, the titles that she used, stylistically, it's right from Iron Age 1, which is right when Hannah would have lived. So that's a problem. The real reason, the only reason you would date this as a later time, from a later time, is if you are handicapped by unbelief. Hannah discerned Yahweh's intention and what he is going to do, that Yahweh, that God was bringing a revolution of the elites. He was casting down oppression, and he was in the beginning of, of dealing with wickedness in his people, and he was raising up the poor. He was going to craft a king. Hannah saw it, okay? Now, if we step back a, mo a moment, not just from Hannah, obviously Hannah's very important figure, very important woman in this biblical story. If we step back and look at it in general, we'll see throughout the book what you see is women giving the needed word for the hour at a crucial point in the story. So, for example, 1 Samuel 4, we meet Phineas's wife. And while she is giving childbirth, <laughs> while she is burying a child, now, I don't know if you've ever given birth to a child, but it's, it's kind of distracting, you know? Like, your mind's on other things, right? And here, this woman, 1 Samuel 4, she's not only giving birth, she's dying, actually. 
she's expiring as she's giving birth. And as she does that, she gives the, the interpretation of what's going on in the people of God because she names her child Ichabod. The glory has departed, which is exactly what's happening in the nation of Israel. And this she does while she is otherwise engaged. It's amazing. What a woman. 1 Samuel 25, we meet Abigail. We made mention of this, uh, that difficult um, question uh, yesterday, that Abigail intersects David when he's on the way to actually, you know, slaughter her husband and her family. She intersects him in his journey and, and pleads with him and says, remember the promise. And in the process of calling David to remember the promises of Yahweh, she utters that, that promise, the first one in the book, the first one in the Bible to connect David with dynasty. She says, God will make of you a sure house. In some translations, that means a sure dynasty, that God is going to give you a dynasty. First time it comes out, comes out through the mouth of a woman. Second Samuel 14, the wise woman of Tekoa, who uh, Joab partners with to try to convince David to do the right thing and bring his son Absalom back from exile. It's a crucial moment in the, in the story because this is where that, that rebellion of Absalom could have, been, could have been stalled. It could have been um, changed and if David had followed through. But the reason that Absalom comes back from, from exile is because of the wise woman of Tekoa and her words. Later on, Bathsheba secures the rightful heir to the throne. So all I'm doing here is I'm just bringing out the story, friends, some of the most important points of the book. The themes of the book are, are, are made by women. They come out through the mouths of women. So is the Bible really down on women? Let me give you another quotation from another professor. This, this professor is Gary Rensberg. He's a professor of ancient Jewish history. And this is what he finds when he opens the Bible. Open your Bible at random, and you will notice something striking. Female characters abound. And it's not simply a lot of women. It's a lot of strong women. These women are, not, are the antithesis of what we might expect from a patriarchal society. They're not passive, demure, and timid, but they're active they're bold, they're fearless, they're assertive. They are not what we would expect based on contemporaneous uh, Near Eastern literature in which uh, generally women do not play leading roles in the narrative, unquote. You think about what he's saying there. He said, when, I, when, I, when you actually open the Bible and read it, I don't know what Bible Alan Bloom is reading. When you actually open the Bible and read it, what you find is women are very prominent in the narrative. And that is not what happens in most holy books, uh, religious books. That's what you find in the Bible. And we need to reckon with that. We need to reckon with how the definitive interpretation, at least in, in Samuel, of one of the biggest changes in history comes through the mouth of a woman. Okay? What does that mean for us who are Bible readers? Who are, where's that word cloud? Bible believers, as Pastor was saying. What should that, how should that influence us? What should that teach us? The question, the tasks, thank you, gospel-driven, Bible-believing, okay? What does that mean for us? 
the task the, the text asks us is, do we have that voice, the feminine voice, in the way that we're conducting our lives? Do we have that voice in the way we run our homes? Do we have that voice in the way that we run our churches? Are we walking in a way that acknowledges the Spirit's work through women? That's the question that we, each of us, should ask individually. Are you doing that in your marriage? Are you heeding the voice of the woman? Are you listening? Is there a place for the, for the voice of the woman in your home, in your family, in your church? Now, there are different ways to do this. There are explicit ways to do this. There are implicit ways to do it. Uh, we talked a lot about kind of marriage during the seminar, but we think about this, and we need to think about this in terms of church as well. I love the, the activities that you're doing here in this church. You're, you're having something that is celebrating uh, men and your masculinity. You're having something for women and making sure they're spiritually strong. That's one way to do it. You know, one way that we um, do it in the church that I'm at um, is we, we make sure we have women on staff. We have a staff there and we hire women and we delegate a lot of responsibility to them. So it turns out a lot of what goes on in the church um, is decided uh, by these women on staff. That's something that we do. In a previous church where I pastored, you know, we, we were Presbyterian, like you're Presbyterian. The church is governed uh, by uh, elders, and uh, we have elders who are men. And what we had in our previous church was I even did a women's council who uh, the, and these were women who gathered, mature women of the church, to advise the session so that we made sure that we had the women's voice uh, like Hannah in what we do. So it's just like an, in a family. You know, if you have a family, it is a very foolish husband who does not consult his wife on decisions of import, right? It is a foolish husband who doesn't take his wife's word very seriously uh, when you have something important to decide. doesn't mean you're always doing what she's saying, but if you are not listening, you are a foolish man, right? Are we allowing the feminine prophetic in our lives? That's the first, the first point here. But that's only half the story, right? Because what does Hannah do when she gets this miracle child? She beseeches the Lord for the child, and he comes forth, and it is a man-child, the man-child is brought forth in the story to be the kingmaker. It wasn't a daughter that was brought forth to make kingship happen. It was specifically a son. In fact, if, one way to interpret the derivation of Samuel's name, you take that name, Samuel, and it's a, it's a little bit ambiguous because it could mean a few different things. But if you look at the way Hannah says she named him, she says, because the Lord has heard me. And so one way you could look at it is that Samuel's name actually means heard of God. Right? Hannah was heard by God when, when she was praying for him. And then he heard from God when God spoke in the next chapter in chapter 3. The man-child hears from God for Israel. And God, as we read on in the story in chapter 3, he chooses to direct the covenant community affairs through the guy. And as the man-child grows in stature, 
Samuel. He needs to apprehend the mission. He needs to direct them where they're going. And while many men fail in the book of Samuel, Samuel rises to that occasion. He is the one who makes kingship happen there. So if we, again, take a step back and broaden our view, just as we did with the women, what we see in the Bible is that there are distinctions made in the Bible about men. God, for example, only calls men to be priests. There's thousands of years of history in Israel, and it's always men who are called to be priests. Now, some people, when they, when they look about uh, the way the Bible makes distinctions between men and women, the way that the Bible upholds gender, some people like to say, well, you know, that's because that's the way things were back then. And God really couldn't do anything different. They were all hard, hard of heart. And, uh, you know, God really would have done things differently. Like he would have wanted to have women priests, but society just wasn't ready for it. And they wouldn't have accepted it. You know, and that's an argument that you sometimes hear. The problem with that argument is that it is exactly wrong. It is exactly wrong when it comes to priests. Because all of the neighbors, the, the surrounding uh, peoples around Israel had women priests. There were priestesses in every religion around Israel. They were near neighbors. You can look at far neighbors. They all had priestesses. They all had women priests. It would have been the easiest thing in the world for Israel to have a woman priest, for God to say, okay, let's make women priests. Easiest thing in the world. Never happens. Why? Why would that be? You can't say because, oh, the culture wasn't ready for it. You know, that it would have been too, too um, strange for them. They couldn't handle it. No, they could handle it. Everybody around them was doing this, but not God. And it's because of what the priest was doing, representing the people before the God. Doing this, what the Bible would say is a masculine um, distinctive. You can also look and see that God always was calling men to be kings for the covenant people. You don't have women kings. Actually, you do have a few exceptions. So that's because they usurped <laughs> the throne. They weren't supposed to, but you had a few exceptions there. But God was always calling the men uh, to be king. Why would that be? It's not because the women were less able to do some of these things that were required. It's not about gifting. It's because of what it did in the relationships between them. You know, there was one time a fellow in my church uh, that I was discipling. He was a great guy, and uh, he really wanted to follow God and was walking with Christ, but he had a problem with his, with his manhood. And he, he once said to me, what, what do you think I need to do to grow as a man? What do you think I need to do to become more, uh, more of a man? You know, it's a pretty honest question, right? You know what I told him? I told him, you know what you need to do? You need to lead in our, you need to become a worship leader here. Because in our church, we do a first part of the service, a liturgy. So we do praise and we do confession of sin. And, and it's led by um, a worship leader. We have guys do worship leading. And I said to him, you know what you need to do? Step forward for your sisters. He was a single guy. And I said, and lead worship. Take on that responsibility for your sisters. And he did. 
And it was a great step for him. And I'll tell you, he looks at that situation now. Um, if you, you asked him and said, this was an important step for me as a man, becoming a man. That's what God is after. And so Jesus, you know, when he chooses his 12 apostles, right, he chooses men. There were women traveling around with them, could have chosen women. He chooses them to be men because he knew that God wanted something to, he wanted to do something in these men. God had something for the men to do. So there's clearly a difference between the way in which men and women love each other in the, co in the covenant community. And that's what we see brought out here. Okay, so what does that mean for us? Again, we're reading this, we're seeing this, the kingmaker, we're seeing how men are distinguished in the Bible. What would that mean for us as Bible-believing Christians? What, what should we do? What we should do is not fail, friends, to call forth our men to get the mission. That's what you need to be doing as a man. We need to call forth our men to get the mission for the, for the family, for the church, for the, for the marriage, to be kingmakers. And I would say to, to women, don't take this. Don't take this from, your, from the men in your life. Don't take it away from them. Or if you, you'll end up cutting off your nose to spite your face. Because if you obliterate gender distinction, you say, I don't want to do that. Don't be surprised if the next generation, you have responsibility shirking wimps on your hands. Because that's what happens. Now, I know I can say this, because I know many women who just want the men in their life to be more responsible. Whether it's their sons, whether it's their husbands, whether it's their brothers, they want men in their lives to just take responsibility. But let me tell you something. You do not get responsibility without giving authority. You don't get it. You cannot separate the two. You know that in the workplace. Like if, you know if you're in the workplace and somebody gives you a job to do but doesn't give you the authority to do it, that is a lesson in frustration, isn't it? That's how you get policemen killed. Right? Give them the responsibility to do something, but don't give them the authority to do it. That's how you get teachers, you know, tongue-tied and frustrated. Give them, the, give them responsibility, but don't give them the authority. That's what you need to do. Don't separate them. And that's the same with men. We need to call forth men to be kingmakers, to hear from God, to get the vision, to lead in God's purposes. Now, I would just say one more thing for women here, because just in our cultural context right now, in the moment that we are, this is, a, this is a big problem for a lot of women. This is a difficulty for them because they feel like it assaults their equality. You feel like if you, if you say there's something that I shouldn't be doing and a man should be doing, that to me assaults my equality. Like I don't feel like I'm an equal image bearer. And we spent a lot of time this weekend, if you were at at the seminar talking about how women and men are equal in bearing God's image. They have equal status, equal importance in bearing God's image. But a woman might feel like, you know, if there's, as soon as you say there's something that I can't do, I feel like that's assaulting my equality. To voluntarily surrender prerogative in certain situations makes you unequal. 
feels like you're not, not important. But you know what? It doesn't have to. It doesn't have to assault your, e any, your equality if your importance is respected. Now, you might, some people might say to me, you know, you, you can't understand, and you can't say that as a man because you're not in my position. So you don't know what it feels like. Actually, I think I do. I'm not a woman, never been a woman, and I never will be a woman, just to reassure you <laughs> where I'm coming from. Not going to be a woman. So, yes, I'm not a woman, but I do know what it's like to be in a position of submission. Because right now, I'm in a position where I'm an associate pastor. First, I was a lead pastor. Then I was a senior pastor. So I had staff under me, pastoral staff under me. And now I've taken a position where I'm an associate pastor. And I, from day one, when I stepped into this position, let me tell you, I knew what my job was. And my job was to not be in charge. <laughs> and I knew that because I was a senior pastor, I knew that stepping into the associate pastor, what I needed to do was to promote the senior pastor and his vision. And I knew I was not in charge. You know, in Presbyterian churches, you find out as a pastor, you're never really in charge because it's the session who's in charge, right? Your elders are in charge. But the elders govern, but the pastor does lead. When I stepped into this position, I knew that what my senior pastor needed was for me to support him, to promote him, to submit to him. And I did. And you know what? It did not assault my, my equality. And it helped. It did help that this guy that I was um, serving with, he really did appreciate me. And he really did, um, you know, understand me. And, and he really did um, kind of want to, he, he thought that I was important. And so I could, I could feel that. So that helped. But I'll tell you, there were times when we, you know, came at it differently. And he wanted to go in a way that I wouldn't have gone in. You know what? I submitted because I was able to say, hey, my job here is to not be in charge. I didn't feel unequal. I submitted, you know. And the reason I submitted was because I was doing it for the good of the senior pastor that I loved. Didn't assault my equality. It enriched my relationships Call your man to responsibility in your life. Okay, so let's complete this picture of what the woman had to do. Hannah, in the first part of the passage that we read in verses 20 through 27 of chapter 1, she asked for the child, and she was given this child. It was miraculous. And what does she do? She turns around, and she gives her child to the Lord. In this translation, it says she's lending him to the Lord, right? She, because of what Hannah knew, because she was so, she had such great understanding, she knew that she had to do this. She had to give her son in order for the kingdom to come. And you know, the Bible really gets that, our human experience, doesn't it? Because if you're a mother, you know you have to do that too. This is the drama that every mother has to enter into. Sometimes it's really difficult having a child. Some of you, maybe you, you had difficulty, you prayed to the Lord, maybe the Lord answered that prayer. 
but you realize that even though the Lord gave you this child, you have to give that child back to the Lord for his work. Because if Hannah did not give up Samuel, he would not have become a prophet. And the wickedness of the priesthood in Israel would have continued, and there would be no one to anoint the king and guide the tribes into monarchy. So she did something very important there. And you can tell it in her words. Her words are so weighty, they even stretch beyond that 100, 150 years that she's talking about. In verse 10 of her prayer, chapter 2, verse 10, she mentions the anointed. The Lord will bring forth the anointed one. And, and that tells us something, that that's what she's focused on, the coming forth of the anointed one. And, you know, very interesting, if you look at verse 5, she says the barren, this is Hannah singing about what the Lord has done. The barren has, have, has born seven. It's very interesting. The barren, the one who could not have children, has now born seven. And that's significant because as we read on, we found out that Samuel had brothers and sisters, right? After Hannah had Samuel, the Lord gave her other children, and she had five other siblings. So it was Samuel and five other siblings. You count that up, what does it make? Six. So there was, and yet she said there was a seven. So the seventh had yet to come, another anointed one that would also come through a supernatural birth. You know, when we turn to Luke chapter 2, we meet another Hannah. In some translations, it says Anna, but actually it's the same name in Hebrew. It's Hannah. And she's also a prophetess. And she also attends a supernatural birth. And that is the birth of the real Messiah, the real anointed one, the true anointed one, Jesus Christ. And so what we see, really beautiful picture in the New Testament, the New Testament Hannah, also a prophetess, greets the seventh child, the real anointed one. And right before that, in Luke 1, we get the song, the prayer of Mary, the mother of that child, the mother of the seventh. And if you compare, if you ever do, if it's an interesting Bible study, you compare Mary's song with Hannah's song. They're very similar. That's right. Yeah, they are. Because Mary also is giving a deep interpretation of the, of the new covenant that's coming. And Mary also is just like Hannah in that she's given this child, and what does she need to do? She needs to turn around and give that child back to the Lord in order for the kingdom to come. So it's just like Hannah, only even worse, because the sword was going to pierce her heart also. But she did it. Mary knew that she had to give her child over to the Lord, and she does, because the king had to come, the real king, to righteously rule forever. So you see, friends, God accomplished even our salvation through a thoroughly gendered story. Very much about men, very much about women, 
This is how he works. And this is how he works in our lives. And we always need to remember this. It was, again, a man coming forth who apprehended the mission. And he came coming through the word and the sacrifice of a woman. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do thank you that you have revealed your plan to us in your, in your word, and you have shown us how much you value women and how much you value men, how you have a role for each of us in our genders to play in the story. And we take inspiration from that, Lord, because we know that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. You know, we know that you still work that way. And we are encouraged to, to encourage one another in these things. But even beyond that, we praise you because we know that you came to us through this story, the very story of Mary and then Jesus. Again, a woman and a man, you came and you accomplished that salvation through our great King, Jesus Christ. And we praise you forever and ever because we can live in that truth with you and be redeemed. Amen.